Good evening, everybody, and welcome to episode number 11 of Imprint Cast, the podcast dedicated to the Australian boutique label Imprint Films. My name is Tony Meaches, and joining me is my colleague, John Matthews. How are you doing, John? Uh, doing well, thank you, Tony. I'm very excited to be here this evening. Uh, so, yes, doing good. Oh, same here. I'm really excited for today's for this show. And also joining us is our regular colleague, Ryan Kendall. How are you doing, Ryan? Yeah, I'm good. Sorry, I just took the microphone off mute. I'm good, thank you. Just chilling. It's a chill night tonight. Oh, good. I'm sorry, but I have to do this. And oh my God, have we got a great show for you today. <laughs> Our long-awaited second Imprint Films Blu-ray collection fan group and Imprint Cast Members Poll Blu-ray review. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Members' Choice episodes... How it works is we randomly choose a member and they choose their top three imprint releases and we run a week-long poll and whatever our members choose that have the highest amount of votes is the film we discuss with the members of this group. But in this episode, we have two special guests. Our first guest has been on our show before and has worked on a few imprint titles such as Reflection of Fear, The Possession of Joel Delaney, body parts, and the Medusa ch- touch. And whenever his name is on an imprint release, we have to ask him to, if he can join us on, the spe- on one of our episodes, and we are so grateful that he always says yes. We are grateful for his generosity and his time. Welcome film historian and author, Lee Gambin. How you doing, Lee? Good. Thanks for that nice intro. It's lovely. Yeah, I'm always happy to be your guest. Oh, every time I, I see an imprint release with your name on it, we have to just, we have to do it. I know there's more coming. I mean, like mm. of course with body parts and Medusa touch. Hopefully we'll get them done. And um, yeah, I'm really excited for this one. And now to introduce our next guest. This is his very first time on the show, but he does regularly post in the imprint groups. And whenever there is an imprint announcement, he instantly orders bundles once they are announced. And he's a true imprint supporter. Please welcome fellow imprint completist, Paul Berryman. Paul, how are you going? Hello, thank you. Yeah, really good. Great to be here. Great to be in good company with you all. Thanks for having me on. No, it's an absolute pleasure. Any, you know, someone who's, a, who's an, also another imprint completist, I believe you have every imprint to date? I do have every imprint to date. And as you say, when they go up for pre-order, I don't want to miss out. A um, little bit of FOMO in there. I'm going to jump on, place the mm-hmm. order so I can get them and just like discover films either I haven't heard of or films I haven't seen in ages. It's always great. Well, literally, when once I as you know, once I post the announcement on the on the groups, I swear within two minutes you've already <laughs> said you've already commented and said order placed. That that's about right. I usually that's have right. um, my iPad. By me, ready to go for, <laughs> to refresh in, um, the website when they go up. Um, yeah, tragic like that. Oh, not tragic at all. It's great. Um, so, Paul, <laughs> um, how did you first hear about Imprint Films? Um, I'm pretty sure it was just through um, a Facebook post um, from ViaVision when they first announced the first wave. Um, what was it nearly two years ago now? Um, <laughs> and saw that first wave they were doing. Um, and yeah, just wanted to know more because obviously a company like that in Australia um, seemed to really come out of nowhere considering, you know, we've got other um, like Arrow and Criterion overseas and 
just seeing that they were going to do premium format, like um, boutique label stuff. Um, and yeah, that was from their Biovision page and then they had the imprint page and just went on there and grabbed them the moment they went up, really. Yeah, it's great. It's good that we have a boutique label here in Australia now. Like, um, but as you said, Criterion is a main, I think is one of the biggest ones in the US. And of course, UK is Arrow and um, an, an Indicator, of course. Are you also an indicator yeah. too? I'm not an indicator completist, um, but I have been picking up a lot of their releases, especially uh, a lot of the Hammer ones that they bring out. Oh, great! Yeah, I collect all the Hammer ones as well. And of course, I'm um, John and John and Ryan. They're they're actual imprint. I mean, indicator completists. They have every single one to date so far. I think. Yes, yes, and I'm insane. I do indicator and imprint complete as well. So. <laughs> You do everything complete. Don't have a fucking like sugar cutter, John. <laughs> <laughs> I'm crazy, I tell you. Um, and, and Paul, Paul, you also, um, I know, do you also collect Warner archives? Because I know sometimes on a sale you grab some archive stuff, I think, as well. That, that's also a recent um, collection of mine, yes. Yeah, so um, yeah. the past couple of sales that I've done, I've gone there and on there and grabbed a whole bunch of titles um, just when they go on sale for a, a good price. Um, Yep. Yeah, definitely getting into Warner Archive now as well. But the, the latest ones have been, for me, um, Indicator and um, some Arrow as well. Um, and, of course, Umbrella. Yeah, Umbrella, they're doing some really good stuff now, especially with their Beyond Genres, Sunburn Classics, and Ozploitation, which is a, my personal favourite. And, of course, the um, <clears throat> the Sensual Cinema and World Cinema set, sets also. They're great. Yeah, they have really great releases, and I love that they um, go to all the effort of getting this new special features made for them, um, and just, like, they're, they're really lovely releases, um, and it's great to see the you know, imprint umbrella, them putting them out here, like, for the Australian market, but then also getting such a wide audience overseas as well, people ordering them, um, importing them into the States and the UK, it's great. Absolutely, especially and with imprint, especially, there's so many... So many videos I see on YouTube from the from the US, Ireland, Scotland, England, everybody showing off their latest imprinting acquisitions. It's great. It's fantastic. Yeah, good to see such love for the label. And um, obviously, the more that uh, people buy from them, the more they can do. Indeed. And for and now um, we are going to be discussing about your top three choices, and of course. The number one, the number one title that was chosen by our members. The other two titles, what were the? Do you remember the other two titles you chose? Yes, um, the other two were um, the Country Girl and um, Hands of the Ripper from the Hammer set. Mm. Yeah, both great releases, especially Hands of the Ripper. That's one of my favourite Hammer films. And of course, the winning title by a very substantial amount. <laughs> Is um, imprint release number one hundred and eight. The now out of print, the out of towners. Is that a beautiful city or is that a beautiful city? Oh, that's a beautiful city. George, they can't find the bag. They lost our luggage. Like 
Jack Lemon and Sandy Dennis are the out-of-towners in Neil Simon's outrageous comedy about New York City. Hold it. Uh, what's wrong? Put your hands up. Oh, my God! Look that wall. I just don't make a sound. When they take you for an out-of-towner, they really take you. You mean to tell me that I was mugged while I was sleeping? You're not telling me you didn't hold the room for me. Man, move it! Oh, my God, we're being kidnapped. I'm a business executive from Ohio. Folks, look, I've got no place to sleep. I've got no money. I want to know what the city intends to do about this. What we need now is hope and courage. We don't surrender. You hear that, New York? We don't quit! You go ahead and you can rob me and starve me and break my teeth and my wife's ankles. I'm not leaving. Imprint release number 108, The Out-of-Towners, released in 1970. When they take you for an out-of-towner, they really take you. George Kellerman is offered a promotion to the firm's New York City office. As visions of Fun City dance in his head, he and his wife embark on a well-planned, fun-filled weekend in New York. But everything that could possibly happen, and a few things that couldn't possibly happen, happens. Paramount Pictures presents Jack Lemon and Sandy Dennis in a Neil Simon story, The Out-of-Towners. Director of Photography, Andrew Laszlo. Film editor, Fred Chulak. Produced by Jalem Productions Incorporated. Music by Quincy Jones. Written by Neil Simon. Produced by Paul Nathan. And directed by Arthur Hiller. Special features include a 1080p high definition presentation by Paramount Pictures. Audio commentary by film historian Lee Gambon from 2022. And a theatrical trailer. Another out of print title. My goodness. Lately... Imprint has been, imprint titles nowadays have been going out of print like crazy. It's, it's, it's amazing. It actually tells you how people love, people's love for physical media and also for some titles that have never been released on Blu-ray that they must own. It's great. People are finally, finally like noticing it too. Because like after two years, like the last few bundles are just fucking like going out of print. I don't know bundles, but like, you know, releases, whole bunch mm. of releases, so... Yeah. People are like sort of just saying, it's like, oh, what's this? What's it's going good. on here? It's good. They've, they've definitely gained a large cult following, particularly over in the US and UK, I think the past year, really, or past, you know, six months or so. So, yeah, it, it's not only Australians going after them, but, yeah, like you said, international audiences, which is great. It means, that, yeah, like I said, Paul, they can do more things. And, um, and physical media, yeah, the people are realizing it is important. I mean, there was an article the other day, I think The Hollywood Reporter, uh, about HBO Max essentially could be vanishing soon. They're, they've been pulling stuff off left, right, and center. So it's like, can you really trust streaming for your favorite films? No, you can't. You can't at all. Physical media is the only way to go. Uh, just to interject there, I hope HBO um, titles start to see physical media releases because yes. a lot of um, a lot of my fa- – I'm a big um, after-school special fan <laughs> and a <laughs> lot of, like, 70s and 80s after-school specials belong to HBO. There's a lot of amazing titles through HBO – Yep. Um, that were specifically made for TV. And if the streaming service is 
going to sort of disappear, then where the hell can we access these movies? So hopefully they start to license them off to some companies because I know there's some great companies um, yep. like like Imprint, um, but also like Fun City Editions, which are doing really beautiful releases of made-for-TV films. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ken and Lorba mm-hmm. have done some great stuff with TV films, uh, even Warner Archives here and there. But, yeah, I think that's something that um we need so and you're right john it's that it's ridiculous that people rely on streaming it's it's i mean i just feel i think we've talked about this multiple times before but i feel like the streaming services are are good for just a quick fix they're not really Mm. there for you know true cinephilia and that's okay not everyone needs to be like us but ultimately, if you want film, you have to pursue it and find it outside of being spoon-fed it by streaming services because you're probably not going to get it. The amount of people, and these are savvy friends, you know, who will go, oh, how do I see this? It's like, well, you know, remember the old days where you'd go and get a video? Or like, <laughs> so, it's, it, you know, it, it's hilarious. I mean, I've had friends, God bless them, who don't actually freaking know what I do for work. Where they'll say, oh, wow, you just did this, like, for instance, um, just recently, um, Sony Columbia have announced the work I did for the uh, Annie Blu-ray release, uh, 4K release of Annie. And I interviewed, got the, had the pleasure of interviewing people like Carol Burnett, you know, legends like her and Tim Curry and Anne Reinking before she passed away, like a week before she passed away, sadly. But doing all this, and I've had people actually message me going, oh, I just read your post on Facebook that you interviewed Carol Burnett. How do I hear it? I'm like, well... <laughs> You have to buy this release, which will have the interview on it. So they don't even understand that. They think they can probably find it somewhere on like a, a streaming. Spotify, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's funny, that kind of aspect to it. And I know it's, you know, we, it's a very privileged position to be able to afford physical media releases. Of course it is. But I think um, more people are savvy now. Again, it's kind of gone full circle again. People are like, oh, shit, there's nothing on these streaming services. There's nothing yeah. at all. Um, so therefore, yeah, maybe I should actually buy my DVD player back that I stupidly sold, um, and start <laughs> buying films again, you know, because things are, they're fleeting on those services. Yeah. It's so unpredictable, you know, corporate changeovers, um, you know, acquisitions, like things can just vanish. So yeah, it's, it, it's very crucial in this time and people are yeah finally waking up. I think that's why we're seeing a real resurgence in labels like imprint getting massive exposure overseas as well because people are yeah getting fed up with, with streaming services taking movies off so yeah it, it's a positive for the boutique world that's for sure mm. absolutely but as you said lee um where can where can people access some special features on streaming well believe it or not some yeah. if you if you do buy if you buy the film on itunes um they do have special features and even some exclusive special features but um but from the Columbia Classics, I own the, the first two volumes, and I can't wait for the third. None of those features are included in this in in the iTunes stuff. So um, mm. so yeah, if, if you if you for all of you listening who's excited to hear Lee's commentary on Annie and his interviews, you have to get the box set. I can't wait to get it. To be honest, it's going to be amazing. So yes, um, we are here to talk about Imprint Lesson number one hundred and eight, the Outer Towners. So, um, Lee, um, you know, you and I, we've always talked about Sandy, Sandy Dennis when we were, um, when we message each other sometimes and we'll talk about some of our favourite films. But, oh man, she's, she's awesome. I absolutely adore her. Mm. 
is um out of town is your personal favorite Sandy Dennis film, or do you have any other, or do you have one of another favorite of one of favorite performers? That's a massive question because, uh, yes, I absolutely adore her and I grew up loving her. The first exposure to her was late night watching Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Um, and that's a magnificent performance, but I feel like, yeah, we know that movie very well, and, and it's amazing. It probably doesn't need to be lauded anymore. I mean, you know, yeah. it's a masterpiece, and we all know it. It's a given. But for me, her, my favourite performance of hers would be Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, which is another film that I was lucky enough to work on for Eureka. Eureka did that, a beautiful release of that, and I got to um, do the commentary on that to champion my Sandy as well as Cher and Kathy Bates and um, Karen Black, et cetera, and that magnificent cast. But that's my favourite performance of hers, and it kind of is a perfect sort of, um, uh, I guess, uh, the quintessential Sandy Dennis performance, you know, um, neurotic and mental case and nutsy and, <laughs> and tragic and um, beautiful and vulnerable and, and um, fragile and emotionally, you know, fragile and, and messed up. That character is such a mess. Um, but the, uh, every other performance of hers I love. I love The Fox. Um, a lot of people probably find that film, you know, uh, the P word, I'm going to use it, problematic, but, you know, whatever. I think it's a masterpiece. Um, that's by Mark Rydell, who's such an amazing filmmaker. He did films like The Cowboys and The Rose, etc. But mm -hmm. he made this film called The Fox in the late 60s where Sandy Dennis plays um, a woman who runs a chicken farm in Canada with her lover, um, uh, played by Anne Haywood, and um, the two of them have this, you know, sort of very intense relationship, but it's also kind of a bit um, fragile. It's on it's on the brinks of, you know, sort of um, failure, I guess, much like their farm. And then along comes Care Delay, who uh, is kind of representative of the fox. It's based on a short story by D.H. Lawrence. And so he comes in as this man who basically, I guess, quote-unquote, kills one and cures one. Um, in this kind of this sort of um, trend that was happening in the 60s where a lot of queer characters were disposed of or they were villains or they were quote-unquote fixed. Um, you know, you see a, a, a slew of um, films like Lilith or um, even like Pussy Galore in the Bond film. You know, there's this, all this, this, this trend that's happening. But yeah, The Fox is amazing as well. She's just amazing in that. It's a beautiful gothic, um, I guess I call it a psych horror film. Um, also, uh, the Robert Altman work with, um, again, she did Jimmy Dean in the 80s but and the, and the play before it, but um, also the, end in the, the 60s as well is, yeah, that Cold Day in the Park, which is just magnificent. That's another one of my favourite performances of hers, where she plays a sort of pent-up, um, I guess, quote-unquote, young spinster who uh, keeps um, a young boy prisoner in her house. It's a sort of trapped man syndrome movie, and there's a lot of those coming out at the same time with films like The Beguiled um, and The Baby, etc., but yeah, you have the, the that Cold Day in the Park, which is another film where she's just this repressed, psychotic woman, and the ending is a clincher. I, I was lucky enough to screen the, um, well, maybe the audience was lucky enough to see it. I just facilitated, but I, I screened <laughs> that Cold Day in the Park for a, a festival that I programmed, and um, the audience, most of which had never seen it, were like just holding their breath um, watching this film. It's such an intense film. It's basically a two-hander really as well between Sandy Dennis and this guy. Mm. But um, Alexandra Hala Nicholas, you know, another legend um, of Melbourne, um, uh, the film community, she did the introduction. It was just magnificent. But yeah, that film is magnificent as well. But also, um, you know, later works of Sandy's like 976 Evil, which was directed by Robert England, which is a great horror film. Uh, yeah. She was in God Told Me To, which is a Larry Cohen film, which is great. 
Um, there's a great film where she pl- I'm obsessed with teachers and student movies. So like put upon teachers and from working class backgrounds dealing with working class kids. And there's a film called Up the Down Staircase, which is um, amazing as well, um, which is kind of, you know, on par with all those, you know, to surf with love um, films, which is just great. But yeah, she's just amazing. Everything she's she's been in is just always fantastic. And she has that kind of quality that is so um, recognisable and distinctly hers. So in the out-of-towners, you get her real easy to delivering comedy, but also tragic comedy as well. That film is, um, and we're going to obviously deep dive into the movie, I'm assuming, but that film is so um, tragic. Like, it's just this, you know, this uh, um, full um, run of everything that can go wrong. And so from that comes all this comedy, um, which is great. But it's also quite a, 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 people have sort of considered it quite a mean film. Like, it's these people are just so ruined and ruined by their circumstances that they become sort of misshapen by it. And they physically do. You know, you see her losing her heels and he loses teeth, etc. So it's that kind of thing where um, the world just sort of um, fucks with them so much and grinds them to the ground. They just become these messes. But she is just divine in it. And her comic timing and style is hilarious. I mean, I always got confused that people considered Jimmy Dean a comedy. And I thought, oh, really? But no, <laughs> yeah, I know. But you can sort of see that aspect, I guess, the idea of fandom, you know, making someone absolutely insane. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she's just brilliant in this film because I feel like with the out-of-towners, she plays up the sort of um, doting sort of um, wife who also has this sort of quiet strength but also is so fragile and vulnerable that the comedy comes through this very personal sort of experience. It's a very human um, performance. There's something that's so in tune with what the human condition um, entails with this sort of comedy of errors. And I think she just captures it perfectly. Plus she's kind of like the the epitome of what was happening in Hollywood as well, the new Hollywood, what was coming out of the studio system and we're going into sort of more um uh, uh sorry uh you know auteur filmmaking so she's kind of that kind of actress that's outside of the glamour thing and she's kind of coming into that sort of realm of you know your Shelley Duvall's and your Sissy Spacex and your Sally Fields and your Streeps and your um you know all these actresses who were very much of the new Hollywood this kind of non um studio system sort of uh vibe and sensibility where they were kind of part of this sort of art movement um not to say the studio movement uh, period wasn't artistically inclined of course it was all of my favorite films were in that period but the new hollywood's are just, just a different take and a different sort of style and sandy dennis fits in that perfectly but yeah the out of town is i think is a really good vehicle for her i think she's just so brilliant in it and yeah just hilarious but also really tragic oh absolutely yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get more into jack lemon in a second let's just ask our other 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 people here that um so, um, John, how did, when did you first see the Out of Towners? Yeah, uh, so this is a bit of a uh, bit of blasphemy, but I saw the remake first, <laughs> the '99 remake. Uh, ha ha, and, same. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and uh, and and at the time, I didn't think it was terrible. Like that remake was completely shattered on by the critics and everyone. I thought it's not too bad, but then I I realized through that remake, I went, oh, there's actually this is a remake. There's actually an, a, an original film. So I tracked down the the local DVD, and uh, and I saw it. Yeah, probably oh, maybe I'm trying to think, maybe 15, 20 years ago. It was quite a while ago, and uh, and yeah, I I 
absolutely loved it and and i just fell in love with it as as a film and, and then i realized after seeing the original yeah that the remake's pretty awful in comparison to, to the original just because it's so well done but uh yeah it was, it was a local dvd um that's when i saw it quite quite some time ago but um and i'm glad i got to revisit it with with uh, with imprint yeah ryan you said you you saw the remake first yeah yeah like i knew there was um this the original beforehand but like i was just in a um salvos and whatever and i saw the remake and like i can't pass up like steve martin and golly horn like even if the film's not the best like back like, and those two are just a blessing so i uh, yeah i had to buy it watch i didn't mind it it is what it is it's not not terrible no nah, but um uh, yeah when i watched some um, this one i was like yeah this is this is great like jack lemon like comic genius he's fantastic oh, yeah just perfect and oh, Sandy Dennis brings down like that almost like humanity aspect to it all, while Jack Lemmon's just like waving his arms around, like going crazy as he normally does. And Sandy's just like sitting down there with like one heel and like doesn't she lose an eyelash as well or something? Yes, she was. And she just looks eyelash. really odd. That's like the greatest. I think that's one of the greatest things. Her losing just like one eyelash, and you could just notice it throughout the whole film. <laughs> Great. <laughs> And Paul, how about you? How did you? When did you first see the Outsiders? Um, I discovered it through this imprint release. Um, it's one that I'd heard of, but I hadn't um, had a chance to see before. Um, and having since watched it and knowing there's a remake, I might seek it out just out of curiosity. But um, I can definitely know that this one like, would be better. And it was just so entertaining and. I mean, one of the main things for me is I'm someone who catches a lot of public transport and the scenes where they're running for the different modes of transport, I could just so relate with. And yet it was so funny to see someone else in that situation. <laughs> oh, right. Yes, I agree. I can see what you mean. I'm, I usually drive everywhere, yeah. so I can't really see the different seats. I can't, but I can't understand <laughs> what you're talking about. Yeah, I first saw The Out of Town as actually rented both the original and the remake at the same time at the video store. So I just um, watched watched um, one, watched the original one day and watched the remake the next. And, um, well, I, I, I hate to say, I'm going to have to say the word, I loathed the remake. I, I hated it for some reason, but the original was just, just amazing. Like um, Jack Lemmon and his frantic... Um, <laughs> All I can I can only think of like, the only word I can think of um, Jack Lemon's performance is frantic, like um it's it's just overboard you know just um over the yes. top yelling yeah. oh, it's just crazy almost I love him like that <laughs> oh right. yeah yeah you can't go it's wrong. like he's yeah. struggling just to like figure out the situation that's like losing control in front of him and he's just like waving his arms like I don't know I don't know how they do it I don't know. I love how he goes, what's your name? And he writes his name on the Yeah, I was <laughs> very much like a, That is one of my favourite parts. Yeah, it's like a, a sort of a Karen moment. He does a lot of those. What's your name? You're going to get a letter from my lawyer. I love it. It's brilliant. <laughs> you get a letter from my lawyer and all. And he also asks for the police officer's name when he's in the, yeah. he's in the police station. Oh, my goodness. Too funny. But then, um, but then all these mishaps happen to him. But the... With the um, with his tooth, and then um, being held up in the rain and running around in the rain, and then gets robbed, then gets robbed while he's sleeping in the park. It's it's everything just goes wrong in this in this film for him and for Sandy, of course. But um, 
the one thing I can say about this film, and this is my point of view, this is my this is my opinion. It's a comedy that drives me mad. It infuriates me, mainly due to the fact that is they can't get a decent break. Everything goes wrong for them, and you, you can't help but feel sorry for them. And um, Lee, I remember you, I heard in your commentary that. When the reviews were first up there, they said that they were unsympathetic and unlikable characters. Are you mm. kidding me? <laughs> you, have, you feel sorry for them, definitely, because they go through hell and back. It's just, um, it's, it's just, um, it's, I don't know how reviewers were back in the day, but no, they weren't. That's, a, that's the thing, like, they're not bad people either. No, they're not. Absolutely not. No. He's trying to go kid for his promotion. He's trying to get to his interview. He, he just wants to get there. And it just yeah. sucks that these bad things keep happening to him. Yeah. All right. And I think it's relatable. We've all been in the situation like hell, even when I was going to Melbourne, um, you know, like. like <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. Ago, oh, boy. <laughs> I, I had an out of towners moment where like the flight just kept getting delayed and delayed. And we were in the airport for six hours and we were in. Pretty much, if we miss the flight, it would be an out of timers night. You have to go to a hotel, um, you know. So we've all, and it happened to me in the states one before. We've all been through those sort of nights, and we can't. It's very relatable, and like you said, Paul, with transport, uh, it's never reliable, and you find yourself in a really bad situation. Especially, you know, even if you, you know, it always happens when you're starting a new job or going for an interview or something, always goes wrong. And I think um, it is a relatable film. Like I don't know why critics would say that, but I think yeah, we find ourselves in these <laughs> these situations all the time, and it's. Very frustrating. Oh, shit, yeah. It's, it's good that you're, you see him allowed to, like, shout out and just, you know, get angry, whereas we would try and you know, maybe stay more calm in those situations uh, and not um, instantly try and sue everyone who has, like, wronged <laughs> us. But it's great that he's going to have that catharsis. Yeah, and I, I saw a few characters like Jack Lemmon at that airport, you know, like, <laughs> literally talking to staff, like, what's your name? Do you know how long we've been here? I'm gonna, I'm gonna write a letter to your manager and yeah, so. You know. Oh, that's I just can't, I can't believe that happened. And um, when you were in the <laughs> at the airport in Sydney, yeah. and yeah, yeah. Like, literally, you actually saw real live out of towners. That's the I saw in it. Yeah, I actually did a live stream. There were people like yelling and arguing with each other and yelling at staff, and it was like, oh, this is a real life out of towners. It was literally that. Like it was literally the airport scene when they. They come in with all the luggage everywhere. It was, yeah, chaos. Complete chaos. Oh, my goodness. Back to Jack Lemmon. Uh, his performance, as I said before, was frantic, frenetic, and um, brilliant. It was just absolutely brilliant. It, and But he's also, he's done so many comedies before, like, of course, pre, the, pre, the year prior or two years prior, 1968, sorry, for The Odd Couple with Walter Matthau. And probably one of my favorite comedies he did in the '60s was Blake Edwards' *The Greatest*, *The Great Race*. Mm. Yeah, *The Great Race*. Yes, I'll just say *The Great Escape* for a second, but no, it was *The Great Race*. <laughs> and um, that was one of my favorite comedies as well. And um, but he's one of the finest dramatic actors as well. Um, of mm. course, we can't go, we can't not say *Days of Wine and Roses*, and. Uh, Missing is another great dramatic Missing, role. absolutely. Lee, you spoke about Missing in the commentary as well. Yeah. And, and of course, um, the upcoming imprint title, Save the Tiger, for which he won an Academy Award for his performance. And, um, yeah, I have not seen that one. I'm really looking forward to it. But, but yeah, with uh, the Days of Wine and Roses, and that's, that, that is probably one of the most harrowing 
films about addiction from from ever, and it's just amazing. And of course, everybody knows that Jack Jack Lemon was was an alcoholic, and he admitted it in the. Um, I believe he first openly admitted being an alcoholic in his interview with the in, inside the actor's studio. And um, but yeah, I don't know his performance and his in that movie was great. But also, of course, with for the out of towners, he was just perfect casting. Yeah, he's great, and I like uh, in his career how he had a, a '90s resurgence as well, which is great. You know, with him and um, you know Walter Matthau, they came back, and you know he was in some dramatic roles. So yeah, he's had a very interesting career. He had a very interesting career, Jack Lemmon, definitely. Yeah, Lee, uh, what about your thoughts on Jack Lemmon? Oh, where do you begin? I, I mean, know where do you uh, begin? Yeah, so I'm glad you mentioned the um, the I guess the versatility of him as a performer um so yeah days of blood and roses is my one of my favorite films about addiction definitely and also one of my favorite performances from him and that's obviously this devastating piece you know him and lee remick just bounce off each other beautifully and just that vortex they fall into is something that's just incredibly harrowing um even more i feel more harrowing than something like panic in needle park like just because it's because Panic in Little Park, for instance, has that new Hollywood sensibility. It's mm. very obviously gritty. Whereas Days of Wild and Roses is Blake Edwards. It's got Henry Mancini. It looks beautiful. And then you can see throughout the progression of their alcoholism how ugly it gets. But there's something about the Hollywood sheen that makes it even more dramatically dire and, and, and um, harrowing and grim. But um, yeah, Missing, you mentioned. So it's like, you know, way later in his career. I feel like the out of towners is kind of like the comic version of missing. Um, I probably that's I don't remember what I said in the commentary in regards to that, but I feel no, yeah, like, that is something along those lines that you said that it's um it is the comic version of um, of missing, which is which is actually quite accurate. You are right about that. Mm, I mean, yeah, so missing. You're dealing with generation gap. You're dealing with um, uh, personal politics. This is a conservative, um, you know, who is wealthy, and then he's dealing with his. You know, missing son and his um, his partner, and she, you know, Sissy Spacek plays you know, the leftist who's you know idealist, etc., and all that kind of thing. So there's that sort of oddness between the two of them, um, and they're on a quest to find someone, and everything just goes horribly wrong throughout that. Whereas the out of towners, you have him paired up with Sandy Dennis, and they're quite different personalities, and they're going on this quest for him to get a job. It's kind of the ultimate dream of someone um, coming to New York and trying to make it, uh, which is something that pops up throughout cinema history, you know, all the way back to the 30, from the 30s onwards. But the thing about Jack Lemmon as a performer is just his physicality. I feel like that's something to really champion and celebrate, especially with the out-of-towners. Like he, he does a lot of running and he does, so does she, of course, but he does a lot of, you know, physical work and this amazing sort of um, impish sort of uh, body that he has, this kind of, real so athleticism really like he's amazing um so you see that and also just the neurosis and the pent-up rage and how he's kind of the everyman and i think that's something that's really appealing about jack lemon you know you got those actors throughout hollywood history people like you know jimmy stewart's and all these guys who are very much quote-unquote the everyday man the everyman so anyone can relate to them they usually played kind of affable sort of clowny kind of characters and you see that throughout his comic work you know Irma LaDouche or The Apartment all these movies so when it's something like Days of Wine and Roses it really throws you um but also you talked about something like the um the great race and his connection with you know Blake Edwards of course again 
you know, with roses, etc. But also his his relationship with Neil Simon, so the odd mm. couple. So he works off these these amazing geniuses so beautifully, and he's just a, another genius. It's just this this magpie's nest of amazing talent um, that create this beautiful work. And if you look at Neil Simon's work throughout history, as far as like you know, obviously his stage work, but then his filmic adaptations, they're just loaded with these talents, these powerhouses who are all distinctly interesting and different. Whether it's Marsha Mason or um, Walter Matthau, who you mentioned, these are really really incredible figures. Um, and Neil Simon just has that kind of electric charge to his writing, and I think it serves Lemon beautifully in performance and his performance style. But if yeah, if you look at the trajectory, I love that you mentioned the '90s resurgence um, there, uh, which is really interesting. But I actually had cool insight into him as a performer um, from a couple of people. But one of them that comes to note is when I was working on my book on the Howling. Um, Robert Picardo worked with him in a play. He worked with him in a play um, called Tribute. And um, that got a film adaptation as well. And it's, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, really kind of intense relationship between the father and son. And he talked about Jack Lemmon as, you know, an amazing performer, but also someone who really um, took the work seriously and, you know, really kind of, um, you better be ready, basically, like, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, just get ready to do your job and know your marks and do your work, but also, you know, talk about it and discuss it and, you know, don't be free with it as far as like, you know, uh, ad-libbing, et cetera, but just have that freedom to express different ideas as to what your character wants to do, all this stuff. So Picardo, you know, got a bit out of it and, uh, you know, it taught him quite a bit um, as this young actor, this young up-and-coming actor on, in stage and theatre works. And then, of course, his first film would be The Howling as Eddie Quist, uh, I'm not sure how much influence Jack Lemmon had <laughs> on Eddie Quist, but maybe, who knows, he probably did. But um, so the the connection between Jack Lemmon and his fellow performers is always wonderful as well. I feel like he's always teamed up with the right kind of performer who just bounces off him beautifully, whether it's Shirley MacLaine or Lee Remick or here, Sandy Dennis. Um, and yeah, I just he's just engaging. He's really engaging, thoroughly engaging to watch. And um just handles that comedy so well and i think the fit that you mentioned the critics talking about them being unlikable it's interesting when you talk when you look at the when you research that film it was also sort of um people were kind of uh, critiquing the fact that it made new york look unlikable that it made new york completely um ugly and um dystopian almost akin to like escape from new york it's like it's it's kind of like this sort of a uh, renegade town where nothing is, um, you know, you never find any kind of sense of um, safety or you never find a sense of self-worth or you're always on the run and you're always going to be sort of um, shortchanged. And I think that was kind of a criticism to it as well. But Jack Lemon just plays it so beautifully because he's a fish out of water, but he's also kind of got these urbane um, pretentiousness about him as well. Like he's got this whole idea of how he wants to sort of, you know, design his um, his trip before the the you know crucial uh, interview, and it's kind of a little bit sort of like you know a, a tad pretentious, but also so obsessive with um, schedule. So when his schedule's thrown, this is when this guy becomes a mess. And I think that's something that's perfect about Jack Lemon as a performer. He plays these characters who are so uptight. Um, that if things are sort of slightly um, rearranged, it throws him. And that's, you know, that's classic comedy um, and that's classic tragedy as well. But the displacement, um, you know, trope 
but he just handles it beautifully and he just looks great like he looks like that classic you know um 60s uh corporate kind of you know how to succeed in business without really trying sort of style um you know that kind of white dude who is just on the brink of making it um so i think everything about his performance in the film and everything he's done is just stunning like um save the tiger that's a film i always remember um the title always came up in oscar um stuff and it was always a film and i was like why did he win because what year was that was that um uh, 973 i believe right so uh, yeah so i remember yeah that was the year of like because i just wanted the exorcist to win everything that year so i so I was like, why wasn't Jason Miller nominated for an Oscar? That's ridiculous. That's what I remember cracking about. Save the Tiger. But, was he um, nominated? I thought he was for some reason. Jason Miller? Yeah, Jason Miller. I thought he was nominated for his, for for the Oscar. I thought it was supporting actor, though. Oh, for supporting actor, yes, that's right. I was yeah, yeah. He was the main. That's right, I get what you mean now, yeah. Yeah, yeah, So I was like, oh. But anyway, upon watching it as a teenager, say the time, it's magnificent. Like, it's fabulous. But yeah, like, a beautiful performance and a great film. I won't spoil it because you haven't seen it yet. But um, yeah, no, that's, yeah, Jack Lemmon, lots of love for him. And also, yeah, just that connection with Neil Simon, how he gets Neil Simon's work. I think that's just, mm. just stunning. And it shows in both the Adanas and um, The Odd Couple. Yeah, of course. We'll talk about Neil Simon now. He's a legend himself. He's, he's written some of the most memorable plays and, of course, done some amazing films. Um, he did the, I believe he did um, Sweet Charity as well. He did. He wrote the book of the play, I believe. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, and also the, the um, you also did a movie commentary a while back of a film he did in the 70s, um, Murder by Death. He yeah, that's great fun. Like, that's it was. Oh, yeah, and that cast. I mean, you know, Peter Falk and um, Truman Capote and Maggie Smith. And, yeah, I mean, it's just stunning. I mean, um, yeah, people sort of uh, either love that one or Clue, you know. Mm, yeah. I, mean, I, I love them both. But, yeah, no, Murder by Death is great fun. It's just wonderful. That whole tribute to all the classic sleuths that we all love, like The Thin Man and Charlie Chan, you know, it's – and um, um, – uh, yeah, it's just wonderful. So it's this kind of, you know, uh, spoof, I guess, on the whodunit thing. But yeah. Yeah, Neil Simon's terrific. But I actually, you know, it's funny, my favourite Neil Simon stuff are the non-comedies. I Like the the film that I would love to see a Blu-ray release of is um, Only When I Laugh, which is this incredible piece starring Marsha Mason and um, Christy McNichol where Marsha Mason plays this ex-alcoholic who's in rehab and she comes back and she hangs out with her two best friends. One of them is James Coco, who plays her gay best friend, and she's this actress, so she's trying to get her life back in order and um, rekindle this relationship, this strange relationship she has with her teenage daughter, who's, of course, Christy McNichol, just coming off the success of things like the series Family mm. um, and just prior to things like White Dog, etc., and it's really full on. And when and what happens is uh, Marsha Mason's character um, is struggling to stay sober and then it just, she hits the bottle and it just goes pear-shaped. And it's phenomenal. And Marsha Mason is just magnificent in it. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful film, really poignant and, and strong. And that's a film that deserves um, some disc attention because, yeah, Neil Simon was a fabulous writer for all sort of genres and genre types. And 
he's just a, just a cool cool guy he was married he was with um, Marsha Mason so you know I spoke to her a bit about him um and you know yeah they worked quite collaboratively like she offered advice and yeah and now she's obviously you know directing theatre etc but he was amazing and also a big fan of a lot of things so that's why he did things like uh, Murder by Death because he grew up with those um those those um detective novels and stuff and he used to um crack it when um the the uh the villain or the killer was just some incidental characters like how the hell is that you know the case you know we never even freaking mentioned this character not even in this story but they pop up as a killer so he used to that's spoofed in the movie in murder by death but um the thing about the out of towners which i find really fascinating is that neil simon adapt initially had it as um, just a one-man sort of soliloquy in Plaza Suite, which was another play that he wrote. And then he developed it as a film and he thought it would make a better film um, than a stage play because it's about these people um, basically, you know, basically on the run in New York trying to make time to get to this interview, etc. cetera. Mm. Um, but also what I love about what he does with uh, or Out of Towners um, is his research into what was happening at the at the time of New York. So you had things like the cleaners strike, um, the garbologists strike, you know, you had things happening with um, South America and protests that were happening um, in the, you know, in New York. Um, the onset of the recession was happening. Um, there was the transport strike. So all this stuff sort of is tapped into um, in the film and it's great. It's really cool. Also, muggings became a massive thing in New York during this period. But this is a whole thing that sort of starts to sort of influence a lot of films about New York um, in the 70s. Because what happens is you get this wave of gritty sort of realist um, grimy movies that pop up, um, you know, from extreme examples like, you know, Death Wish um, and Looking for Mr. Goodbar and Night of the Juggler and all these stunning films to, you know, even films that are kind of tapping into um, New York as a as a place that is um, hard and for the hardened. Um, and that could range from anything from, you know, comedies to dramas or whatever and, and, and in between. But, yeah, it's really cool how the, that's, you know, it's sort of right the end, tail end of the 60s and into the 70s that it goes and sort of starts to influence, I think, I personally think, a lot of what New York centric films will start to look like and feel like, um, you know, there's like the elongated sequence in Central Park. Central Park becomes quite a focal point in a lot of movies. Yeah. Um, during the seventies, um, you know, uh, so it's kind of really interesting, you know, from everything from like, again, death wish to, um, is 45 to hair to cruising, you know, it's really interesting how, these iconic places, these geographical places in this city that um, we've kind of grown accustomed to, uh, you start to get the spotlight. Um, so it's interesting. And it's also like, also like I was saying, the new wave of Hollywood, the new Hollywood, they're out of the studio system. So now instead of like, say, for instance, you have like a 30s musical where New York is presented on sound stages, now we're filming in the actual city. So um, so there you get those kind of real, the real lighting and the real look of it. And, you know, the when you get close-ups, you see in, uh, you know, people's eyes, reflections of the overcast sky or the city buildings. And it's, you know, it's very much real and, and earthy. So it's kind of interesting that sort of transition in film um, and what's going on. And the out-of-town is, is it really, it's sort of an under, 
um, uh, discussed film in that respect, because I think people talk about other things in regards to what was happening in the studio system and how that was on decline, and now the new Hollywood's taking over, and they always mention the sort of big studio flops, but they don't talk about these sort of subtle, quiet films like The Out of Towners, which were ushering the new Hollywood. Um, you know, it wasn't all Bonnie and Clyde and Rosemary's Baby, which were big, you know, studio films. Yeah. It, was fil- it was films like The Out of Towners, which was sort of like low-key in a sense. It's funny you say that before that um, with all the strikes going on because the mayor of New York didn't like the film because it like showed all the strikes and portrayed New York in a bad light. Mm-hmm. Which and yeah, he was not a fan of the film and just like it just kind of he felt like it tarnished himself. And also like going back to like Neil Simon writing this because he normally writes plays and all that. And he was just like, this just turned it to a film script because he was just like thinking, oh, no one's going to understand where they are in New York. So I'm just going to write it as a feature film instead of a play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it opens it up. So you get all those locations. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, this was his first This was his first original screenplay, wasn't it? The Out of Towners. Yeah. The film. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, so, I mean, he does a beautiful job. And then you have all those those great opportunities to have those fabulous character actors pop up. You know, Oh, that... the character actors, I know. <laughs> all these cameos, incredible. Yeah, like Anne Mira, who's terrific, and, you know, um, Dolph Sweet. And, yeah, it's great. And, of course, Lee, you know, you and I, we love, we love good times. Um, yes. But... Johnny Brown, Booger, Bookman is in, was in, there in, in the train. That was amazing. That was great. Uh, yeah, he's awesome. But the one thing that, that shocked me was when I was listening to your commentary was the story of Anne Prentice. I could not believe it. Ah, uh, yeah, it's full on. Oh, Anne Prentice, who was the um, she was the um, stewardess in the in the plane right in, in the plane plane to to New York and. Um, yeah, her background story, that shocked me when um, she was basically spent the last 12 years of her life in prison because she plotted to murder her family. That was just crazy. I know. And the sister of Paula. Yes. And she wanted to kill um, Paula's husband, I believe, Richard Benjamin. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Wow. And I mean, if you ever watch, I'm sure you guys have seen it, but Diary of a Mad Housewife, you'd probably want to kill him in that because he's fucking annoying. <laughs> and, um, you know, poor old bit. Yeah, he's a great, he's amazing, amazing actor, amazing director. Um, but yeah, crazy story, huh? Like, she, yeah, and she was gorgeous. And she, you know, her, like, imagine her career, but like, yeah, it's just a nut job. And, yeah, and wanting to kill people. I know. <laughs> Just fucked. <laughs> you can say that again. <laughs> but yeah, but speaking of um, Neil Simon, one more thing. I want, the one thing I also heard in your commentary that really amazed me was the "Oh my God!" That was an ad lib by Sandy. I couldn't. I did not. I did not expect that. <laughs> that really amazed. That really shocked me, and I believe <laughs> Neil Simon hated it. Well, yeah, because he didn't ride it. <laughs> so, so she ad libbed it, and it became kind of the the the, the war cry, I guess, of the film. <laughs> the running gag. Oh my god. Yeah, I know. And the way she said it, it's always different every time she says it. But yeah, no, it's great. It's kind of um, yeah, just Sandy's imprint on the film. But yeah, it, I, look, the the writing is so sharp and really interesting. Mm. My favorite moment actually in the movie 
is the last moment where she's just defeated and she's sinking, she's soaking her feet and she's like, she has that speech at the end, which is like, oh, after all of that, you know, it's just, it's great. Oh, that was a good one. That was a good moment. Uh, Paul, um, what was your favourite moment from, what was your favourite screen scripted moment in the Out of Towers? I mean, so many. Yeah, and like even as um, Lee was talking, mentioning like Neil Simon and stuff, and obviously he wrote this as a film, but it, it would have been um, in part of the play. The scenes of the dialogue and when especially Jack Lemmon is like performing those scenes, you just you, you don't want to stop listening to him. It's He's got such a rhythm to the way he talks. Um, I like the scenes particularly in Central Park, though, um, where, you know, things really do start to go wrong because now they're literally out on the street. They've got to sleep outside. Um, crazy antics, you know, happen and the, the tooth comes out in that part. Um, and also any scenes in, in the hotel, um, another moment where he tries to get the guy's name to sue him later on because they gave up the room and everything. Um, <laughs> yeah, and John, how about you? What was your favourite? What were some of your favourite script quotes from the movie or from <laughs> it's just too many to mention yeah there's just so many i particularly like the scene when, when they're in the church and he's like you know it's like you're telling me i can't practice or was some of that you know i can't, can't pray in this church he's like and once again you know <laughs> give me a name buddy you better pray fuck <laughs> you'll have a job <laughs> uh just so good just moments like that but yeah there's just so many like little bits and little, little bits and pieces here and there but um, that that scene particularly made me crack up, and uh, and also when he's on the train and they've got nothing but you know uh, crackers and uh, yeah because he he can't eat it and uh, so yeah it's it's just yeah so many little moments there's hundreds of them in the film. Oh, I know there's just so many. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, when he finally gets uh, to the dining car and there's no food. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, except what was it? He's allergic. Yeah, to to peanut butter. <laughs> yes, he's allergic to peanut butter. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Ryan, how about you? What what bit? Um, what what kind? Of, what part of Neil Simon's dialogue did you like? Um, putting everyone on the spot with this question. Uh, well, I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, as I said, like my favorite moment, of just favorite look is just like Sandy Dennis, like with one eyelash. I think that's just a fantastic look. But I I think it just like right at the start where like Jack Lemon's just telling Sandy not to order anything because they're going to be in the hotel in like an hour and they're going to be sitting down. It just like sets up the whole film for disaster. Mm. <laughs> He's just like, don't worry about it, babe. We'll just be doing things. We'll be sick. We'll be right. It's going to be great. And it's just like, it just turns to shit. That's <laughs> great. What about yeah. And then he just does the same thing right at the end and then hostages take over. <laughs> yeah. What about when Jack Lemon nearly got killed? Yeah, oh, the explosion. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, the pothole sequence. Yes, that was. I couldn't believe that when I heard it in your commentary. Yeah, yeah that, that's pretty insane. full on. <laughs> so it was just meant to go a little bit above the ground, but it just flew up and nearly. Yeah, ran. and it whacks him in the leg from memory, and like you can see him kind of, um, you know, have a shaky leg. Genuinely shocked. Yeah, <laughs> not acting. Yeah, crazy, crazy stuff. But um, I think some of the stuff that is really interesting in the film is um, the fact that it's kind of... Because uh, critic people 
critics and fans alike saw it as kind of mean-spirited, like the fact that these people can't, like you mentioned, Tony, they just can't get a break. Mm. That it was kind of like, you know, a film that was kind of going to polarise audiences. They were either going to come along for the ride like us and find it funny and, and you know, like you said earlier, Tony, frustrating. It's meant to be a frustrating film. But yeah. there were other audience, there were people who, the flip side of that were like, I can't watch this. It's actually... It's 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 infuriating and it's driving me crazy. Like it's kind of getting on my nerves, and also it's just so nasty. Like there's no break for these characters. Um, so that's a really interesting thing that kind of you see with a flip of an audience. I guess the the duality of audience and spectatorship. How some people would find this a really annoying film, and some people just find it an absolute stroke of genius and masterwork. So that's I think that's cool what this, that film does. I think that's really interesting. I feel like it's one of those films that um, does both, I think, personally. I think it does it and it works so well because you're like, just let them have a freaking, you know, one moment where they don't have to stress about something. But um, the, it doesn't let you do that. Like, it's just this constant um, hammering on of like, you know, a series of unfortunate events. Um, so there's no break given. And I think that's, that's something that people can give or take. There's people who kind of need the, the the peaks and troughs, and there's people who are fine for a big ride of all peaks, or all troughs in this case. Mm. But, um, so, yeah, that's really fascinating because I remember, like, speaking to people when I told them that I'd be doing work on this, and half of them were either or. <laughs> they were like, oh, that's awesome, it's really funny, you know, they were, they were great, blah, 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 I remember this happening, blah, blah. And other people I suppose were like, nah, I can't watch it. <laughs> like it was just too infuriating and depressing. Um, but I love that. I love that it does both. It does do both. And there was one other sequence that, speaking of, about the dark side of the movie, that also happened in the park, was um, when um, Sandy and Jack find that little boy on the bench. Mm. That, get, oh, that, 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 they got away with murder in that sequence back in the day. Mm-hmm. My God, that was the um, when, when, especially when when Jack took the little boy to go to to you know to, to behind the bushes. Oh, you couldn't get away with it now. No way. No, no, that's right. Yeah, it's kind. Of, yeah, it's kind of like it. It kind of peaks to what the worst thing could happen, you know. And obviously for Jack Lemmon's character. He's um, accused of the most horrible things you could ever do. So it kind of, yeah, leads into that. So it's, yeah, it's grim, but that's the purpose of these kind of, you know, comedies, I guess. They're they're confrontational. And Neil Simon was not shy of confrontational work. Definitely um, and, that, and even with things that are supposedly quote unquote safe or benign or or cutesy like the odd couple, there's a lot going on in the odd couple. There's a lot of stuff to be said about loneliness. Mm. There's a lot of stuff to be said about um, you know uh, displacement again. And then if you go on the other flip side with his non-comedy stuff like something like Only When I Laugh, my God, like that's just tragedy, straight out tragedy. Mm. So. So he's real and confrontational tragedy, like, you know, motherhood being scrutinised. But I think the that's a brilliant thing about Neil Simon's work. It's like this is a film, mm-hmm. a town is a something where you go, oh, my God, they're talking about the most heinous, the most vile of crimes, but it's in a comedy format. 
yeah. how the hell am I supposed to react to this? Well, you know, you react to it as you would, as naturally as you could or whatever, honestly. But um, yeah, no, it's it's very smart writing. It's really smart writing. And it's kind of like putting characters through hell. And I like that as a genre. <laughs> um, I think characters being put through hell is, is pretty engaging to watch um, because it may be a little, a little bit cathartic. So you kind of see how these people have to cope. Um, and especially when they come out of it, um, they kind of come out of it changed, but they also going back home it's kind of like a um in a sense it's like an Aussian sort of thing it's like you know venturing out and then basically I'd rather just be home because home is where you know the normalcy exists and that's where I'm happiest which is very much a Dorothy Gale <laughs> sensibility and then flying back home but then of course it fucks up again for them on their way home with the <laughs> terrorists <laughs> it, it was bound to for them <laughs> It's a very good point. I thought you brought up something interesting, Lee. I think, I think this film was just too ahead of its time because audiences now love sort of anxiety-induced films like Uncut Gems and, and you know, uh, Punch Drunk Love and and sort of you know even Coen Brother type films where things go from bad to worse and worse and worse. And I think a film like this around that time, I don't think audiences were too ready for it, particularly going and expecting a comedy and uh, particularly with with these characters going through hell, uh, yeah, being such a you know, it, it is a, quite an anxiety-ridden movie, you know, and that's what I love about it. It has this energy to it. And, uh, yeah, I, I think now audiences are, can handle something like this, but I think back then it may have been a bit of a bit of a shock for a, for a comedy, shall we say, in regards to it. Indeed, absolutely. But now I've got, I've got to discuss two other behind-the-scenes um, people for the movie. Um, first one is um, Andrew Laszlo's phenomenal handheld frenetic cinematography it mm. oh my god that was great oh my god and i didn't mean to say that in te- I, didn't, I didn't mean to say oh my god i said by accident but um but yeah with um but with um angel laszlo's um cinematography it just goes it, it's great in the, it's steady in the beginning but then it just goes more and more and more and more insane as the film goes along and you actually can feel the insanity of the of how the characters uh are going it's thanks to to laszlo's um cinematography yeah absolutely it sort of comments on the emotion uh or the emotional sort of turmoil the characters are going through but again it's kind of coming into new hollywood turf it's coming into the new wave it's coming into yeah, handheld, um, you know, um, out of the studio system and coming into, like, shooting on location. And mm. you see this pop up in, you know, The French Connection, um, Dirty Harry, you know, all these movies that were starting to utilise handheld and uh, tracking shots and shooting on location and all that stuff. And um, also the aesthetic, uh, the out-of-towners looks you know, in, in, with absolute um, complimentary um, uh, take on this, ugly. Like, it, it looks like a nightmarish wasteland throughout that movie. And that's the point. That's the purpose. Because the opening shot is this kind of beautiful aerial shot of their suburban life, right? And then you get to the grittiness of New York, and it's raining, and it's and it's uncomfortable, and there's tight spaces. And even Central Park, which is, you know, a gore- I don't know if you guys have been 
to Central Park, um, it's beautiful. And um, in the out-of-towners, it's presented as something dangerous and scary. Um, and sort of, you know, it's really interesting. So, like, cinematography in the early 70s um, varies with New York um, depiction. So, you, you know, you can look at something like Death Wish and it sort of really enhances the, the, the look of that film really sort of enhances the sort of grimness of it. But then you look at something like Godspell in 73 and that presents New York as a playground. And even though there's streets where there's graffiti everywhere, it's the, the, the lighting and the aesthetic, they shot really early in the morning so you get that sun, mm. looks like this kind of newfound playground that these, you know, clown disciples, you know, parade around and do their parables in. But it's interesting when you see the out-of-towners where New York looks like a death, like death witch. Like, <laughs> it has that kind of really grimy, gritty sensibility. Um, so everything is aesthetically really um, poignant. And then when you get um, to those kind of spaces, the tight spaces, like the, the people are overcrowded, you know, they never get time on their own until the very end. You know, that breathe, when they finally get to the freaking hotel room and they can just have time out, but he has to go to his his um, interview, it's that you can breathe, you know, they get to lie down, etc. But throughout the whole movie, they're sort of pushed up against desks. They're, you know, crammed into these spaces. So you get that sense of overcrowded um, New York, which is what you get in things like Midnight Cowboy, where characters have to live in little alleyways and crevices in the city. So that whole thing is really interesting, that kind of sense of not having space. And that camera work um, from the cinematographer in this film just really highlights that. It really heightens that kind of um, lack of uh, space and the sort of forced upon intimacy, but it's not at all welcomed or at all um, uh, nourishing. There's something really kind of stressful about it and the, the beat of the film, the pulsating beat of it, like it doesn't stop. It's relentless and the camera does that as well. It's really amazing, like it's so in innovative as well. And you know, you get handheld throughout what's going on in the seven, you know, Dog Day Afternoon uses all these movies, all the New York, oh. they all just utilize it because it's sort of like, like you said, the frenetic nature, it sort of heightens and enhances and um, complements the, 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 the sort of frenzy of the films. Yeah, and the other person I was going to mention was, um, which also started off um, calm and then goes a little crazy toward, throughout the whole film, is the music by Quincy Jones. Mm -hmm. That was, uh, yeah, it's, as, as I think as you said in the commentary, when they're leaving, um, when they're leaving um, their home to go to New York, it was a nice soothing calm music and then when they get to new york everything just goes wild and mm -hmm. and it's also with quincy jones's music that adds um adds to it it's just great oh yeah absolutely it's all just the great it's just great connect collection of people um i reached out to the titles designer who's amazing um, and I was supposed to get like a interview with him and um, I was just running out of time, <laughs> but um, it would have been cool to hear his, his, his story about the design, the opticals for the opening. And he worked on shitloads of things like um, he did the exorcist, he did the warriors, he did, you know, like if you look at his filmography, I think he did star Wars, even like he did heaps of stuff. 
But uh, yeah, he designed heaps of titles from like the 60s on. Actually, no, the Out of Towners is one of his first. It's all like all through the 70s and into the 80s, he he worked on heaps of title sequences, really iconic ones. Um, so yeah, I should have, you know, yeah, I, I can still keep in touch. Maybe I'll do like a a podcast or something with him. But yeah, he he's amazing. Oh, that'd be awesome. So yeah, Paul, what did you think of um, Quincy Jones' music? Oh, I really liked it. And as you said, I love that it, it started in almost a calm way. The title sequence really almost lulls you into a false sense of security with what might possibly possibly be unfolding. Um, and then just you know, the frenetic nature of, as the film continues and how especially the music and the cinematography matches and almost feels documentary-esque as well. Yeah, that's true. Ryan, what about you? What did you think of um, Quincy's score? Uh, Quincy can do no wrong. What are you talking about, mate? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, Quincy's great. Um, there was a documentary on him too, on the wonderful streaming platform of Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> That's, um, yeah, pretty sick. It's really cool to watch. Like, he just did so much. It's mental. It's just amazing that he has never won an Academy Award for his music. He has won an Oscar for the Gene Herschel Award, the Humanitarian Award, but he's been nominated, I believe, seven times, but never won an Oscar, which is yeah, oh, no, outrageous. That's always a weird thing, isn't it? Like, that was the same with Ennio Morricone, like, nominated so many times that we all remember his music, but, you know, it yeah, took him well, until, he... like, he was the fucking 99 to, like, win that Oscar for... <laughs> Um, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, with um, with Quincy Jones, another one of my favorite scores is, of course, In the Heat of the Night. And um, but probably one of my favorites is The Color Purple. I love that music, it's one of the most beautiful music scores of, of his. I love it, it's just beautiful. Always brings a tear to my eye every time I hear it. Uh, John, what about you? Uh, what did you think of Quincy's score? Yeah, I love it. Um, like you said, um, yeah, it, it starts off very calm and very jazzy to suit the the New York theme, but yeah, it just becomes more frantic as the film does. And yeah, I think Quincy's a, a great composer. Once again, just so much stuff he's done and you couldn't have paired a better composer for this film. I guess just the New York vibe. It's just, it matches mm. well. And and you're right, Kendall, like I think he's he's definitely like, should be more recognized. I mean, I'm sure he is in, in our circles, but in terms of mainstream, like he definitely should be, you know, seen as one of the great composers just in regards to his music. I mean, people mm. things like, oh, oh, that Austin Powers theme from Austin Powers. No, that's a actually an old Quincy Jones track that, that mm -hmm. you sing. People just think it's like a the Austin Powers theme, but it's not. So uh, yeah, he's had a lot. <laughs> yeah, and of course the Kill Bill, um, that you know that Kill Bill sequence with. Um, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that, that's right. That's the Ironside homicide thing. Homicide or Ironside? One of the what's it called? Oh, for the laugh of me, one of the two. That yeah, that that that's what um that was popular in Kill Bill, and um yeah, uh yeah, the, just Quincy Jones is just amazing. But of course, everybody knows Quincy Jones as the producer of Michael Jackson's three biggest albums: Off the mm -hmm. Wall, Thriller, and Bad. Yeah. He's done more than that, obviously. But we... oh, speaking of Jackson, he also produced the the Wiz, the score. For yes. The, yeah. Yeah. Which is another 
another, you know, I mean, it's a fantasy film, obviously, but a nightmarish take on New York. I mean, that's mm -hmm. that scared me as a child. The whiz. <laughs> but yeah, just just that kind of yeah, making you know Oz a nightmarish um, place is really interesting. But yeah, that's another sort of interesting. You know, City Lamet, you know, another director who just did all these really uh, diverse, incredible works where you kind of look at Network or you look at, um, you know, Dog Day Afternoon or The Wiz, and it's like far out. This is like really um, extreme different films, but also there's a, there's a through line. There's something incredibly um, uh, political and there's a lot, you know, to say socially. And I think that's what those artists were all kind of linked to and, co and connected with. Even Quincy Jones, you know, as a musician, was really keen on social commentary in his musicality and the way he told um, story through song um, and just the way he wrote. You know, these are really um, politically invested, socially conscious artists, which is, is great. Um, you know, which is very cool. And you, and you see that throughout their work as well as um, uh, what they say outside of their work. Um, but yeah, especially when you're looking at New York, it's such a, such a, I hate to use the term um, melting pot because that sort of assumes everyone's mixed in to be the same. And that's not the case at all. Everyone's very different, but it's kind of a nice, awesome, um, mashup of all these wonderful people mm. who are generally, you know, from immigrant backgrounds or from, you know, um, hard done by sort of very working class um, backgrounds who create. And that's, I think that's something that's to be said about New York. There's something really fascinating about that. And that's sort of uh, the, the eternal struggle, you know, there's, it's an old adage, you know, people come into New York to try and make it, you know, this is old. This is like, you watch things like, you know, old backstage musicals um, from MGM, this is what's happening. Or you'll watch, um, you know, uh, films about characters who want to make it in the arts or they want to make it um, in business or they just want to survive or people who are in New York thriving and trying to survive, even though they're actually um, uh, native to the, to the city. And that kind of stuff really kind of comes out a lot and flourishes a lot in, in the 70s. And you have that kind of sense of um, New York as a as a backdrop and also a character in the films um, as a place that can be the frickin' um, dream city or like nightmare town. Mm. Um, I think these filmmakers like you know Neil Simon and also Arthur. We haven't talked about the director. I mean, I no. don't want to, but you know him as well. Arthur Hiller did very socially aware films, and the out of town is is not at all unpolitical it's incredibly political it's completely socially aware it's completely telling talking to you about stuff that's really um you know uh, all about not only the human condition but what's happening in the world and you know the way big city cities are uh, becoming and how um people relate and you know political upheaval and and political unrest and social unrest and politics etc it's all in there it's all in the out of towns and killer as a filmmaker, always gravitated to works that were kind of very um, socially conscious films. And I mean, two of my favorites of his later in his um, career in the sort of end of the eight, 70s and into the early 80s, uh, Nightwing, which is a eco horror movie about bats, um, but which is so much about um, First Nations uh, American cultures and also just um, the relationship between 
um, indigenous people and white people as well as like what's going on as far as like land rights and what's going on about um, the eco ecological sort of factor of um, this part of America that he discusses in that film um, and also about um, shamanship etc and then Making Love which is an early 80s entry um, about a man Michael Onkin plays a man married to Kate Jackson, and then he sort of slowly realizes that he's actually a, a gay man, and he has an affair with Harry Hamlin's character, who is pretty much uh, he, he's like a terminally single gay man who just likes to sleep with men and own his sexuality and has autonomy over over his sexuality and doesn't want to commit. Whereas Michael Ontkeen wants what he's got with Kate Jackson, but with a man. And then Kate Jackson's character has this beautiful arc as well. But these are really socially aware films and Arthur Hiller as a director would actually culturally invest in what he was discussing. So he, as a Jewish white man, straight man, would, you know, investigate um, Indigenous First Nations cultures for Nightwing and look into all that and do his research and also his science research onto bats, etc. Like he did his homework. And then with Making Love, there's great stories where he'd go to gay bars and like, you know, he was like, what the hell am I doing? This is actually not the important factor of the mm. story. It's about these characters. But, you know, just really someone who had empathy, who wanted to get things, I guess, quote unquote, right. Um, but yeah, I think with his work on Out of Towners, it's very similar. It's kind of that whole thing of him really investing in, um, uh, I guess, New York as a, as a character, because the, the city itself in the Out of Towners is such a, its own entity, it's its own character. Um, but yeah, it's it's just yeah, it's really smart. All these really conscious, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, conscientious uh, artists grouped together, whether it's Quincy Jones or Arthur Hiller or Neil Simon or Sandy Dennis or Jack Lemmon. It's just this freaking perfect storm. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's that shows. And then also you touched on the the character actor that Pepper Pepper the film. You know, Billy D. Williams. You know, um, pops up. Um, and, you know, this is a guy who would then become um, basically referred to as like the black Clark Gable when he um, appeared in um, Lady Sings the Blues, you know, this hunky um, guy, leading man, like, and then, you know, took off with his career and then, of course, become, you know, pop cultural um, royalty with um, Star Wars, Lando Calrissian. But, yeah. you know, that kind of thing is really fast. It's amazing. It's, it's essential. It's that whole thing about championing different ethnicities and sexualities and women and um, the working classes. And it's all there in these fabulous New York films. And the Out of Towners is no exception. Yeah, with Arthur Hiller, I believe what the, he did and he did one of the most popular movies of all time after um, the Out of Towners. I believe he, yeah, he directed <laughs> the probably the most romantic movie of all time probably the most romantic film ever, um, Love Story, with Ryan O'Neill and Ali McGraw. Uh, I, actually, I actually forgot he did that. But then, um, but then, as you said, Lee, Making Love, I have seen that one, but I have not seen Nightwing. Um, I adored Making Love. That was such a good film. But the thing that shocked me the most with Making Love is the screenwriter was written by Barry Sandler, who, um, as I think, well, John and I, we we love this movie and um he also wrote ken russell the ken russell film crimes of passion that was complete, two completely different films but making love is just is a beautiful one yeah i mean it got panned and people kind of 
you know, didn't like or respect it. I really like it. I, I remember when I first saw it as a teenager or, yeah, late teens, I was like, oh, this is pretty dull. But then, and I think I referred to it as, as um, a snooze fest in a piece of writing I did years ago. But then upon re-watching, I was like, fuck, no, this is great because I really like Hamlin's character. I really, really appreciate mm. it. Um, I love his sexual politics. I think that's, you know, fucking awesome. Um, because in this age of everyone coupling up and being like pedestrian, I was like, nah, he's far cooler than that. One thing that's really interesting about um, Making Love is it came out in the early 80s and it sort of detours from AIDS, like the AIDS epidemic isn't mentioned, which is really yeah. interesting. But, but um, that's okay. It doesn't have, you know, not everything in the 80s has to do with gay men or bisexual men has to do with AIDS. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, quite, it's probably refreshing that it didn't. But, um, uh, you know, probably not responsible, but, you know, refreshing nonetheless. But yeah, Arthur Hiller, yeah, and that's a New York film as well. Um, and so you have, you know, New York again as this sort of playground for characters, but um, the characters that populate uh, Making Love seem to be kind of, oh God, I reckon a little, well, Michael Ontkeen's character is displaced because of his uncomfort in his sexuality, but Kate Jackson ends up becoming a bit of a fish out of water, mm. like kind of akin to, to the couple in um, Out of Town is because she has to sort of re-fucking-jig her life, you know. But, um, but yeah, no, I, yeah, Arthur Hill is such an underrated filmmaker. Another one that's kind of like a journeyman director, you can't really tell what uh, Arthur Hill a film looks like. Like, you know how Robert Wise will jump from The Haunting to West Side Story to, yeah. you know, they, they all look and feel different. And I think Arthur Hill is the same. Whereas you look at Spielberg, like, all right, that's a Spielberg. <laughs> you know? um, but yeah, no, they're, 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 he's a great filmmaker. Really underrated he was, I think. He certainly was. Uh, Paul, do you have any favourite um, Arthur Hiller films? Besides I'm looking through his... Yeah, can I say Out of Towners? Or rather... <laughs> yeah, you might as well. Just say it, why not? <laughs> yeah, Out of Towners, definitely. Um, but... I'm keen to like go through his filmography now and discover ones that I haven't. And that's one thing I love doing, especially when I watch something that I really, really enjoy, then going through um, either the director or cinematographer through their filmography and then discovering all the other um, great things they did and may not have realised, oh, they were a part of that or, or, or whatever it might be. Yeah. Ryan, how about you? Um, sorry, I zoned out for a second <laughs> um who are we looking at arthur miller arthur hiller oh arthur hiller i <laughs> <Not laughs> to fucking bore you <laughs> nah, sorry i was just doing work. oh see no evil here no evil mate oh what a film <laughs> that's a good one um i haven't seen many of his stuff much of his stuff yes you know thing Oh, look, National Lampoon's pucked with uh, John Bon Jovi. <laughs> fantastic. Beverly Hills Cop 3, fantastic. <laughs> You're picking all the important ones. I am. <laughs> or the Alan Smithy one. The oh, Alan right. Smithy one. <laughs> That's the important one. Uh, John, how about you? <laughs> Uh, burn Hollywood, burn. No, just joking. Um, uh, 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 Taking care of business. Yeah, the, the Chuck D movie. No, no. Um, 
uh, definitely for me personally, I love the in-laws, the 79 uh, in-laws. Um, did he? Mm. That one? Yeah, he did. Yeah. Um, because I was um, a huge fan of Peter Falk. I'm a massive Columbo fan. And so I went through his phase trying to see anything Peter Falk. And I went, oh, what's this, the in-laws? And, and I found a local DVD and I love it. And then once again, that got remade as well into a remake. But yeah, the, the 79 in-laws highly recommend one of the, the, the better sort of comedy dramas. Um, and it kind of has a similar vibe to Out of Town. It's in terms of the chaos of it. So <clears throat> yeah, it's one I, I really love as well. It's a, it's a great one. Yeah, that I haven't seen the I've only seen the remake of the in laws to be honest with you, but I would love to see the Arthur Heller version. That'd be that'd be good. Well say me once ago I saw the remake first and I went, Oh wait, there's so I went backwards. Uh, Who was in the remake? Uh Michael Douglas was in there and I think Albert Brooks. Oh Brooks. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. (laughs) Bye. Yeah, it feels like early, early noughties, the, the remake. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, the in-laws is fucking brilliant. Yeah, I saw I was like, shit, there's an original. Oh, wow, this is... Once again, it was a case where I'm like, wow, this original is way better than the remake. So. I swear, nowadays, and I hate to say it, but it is true. Hollywood's not that original anymore. They're always doing remakes. It's it's mm. it's really... It really pisses me off that um they <laughs> that they that there's ha- hardly anything original anymore. Nah. Yeah. It's a, just just it's always a remake or a franchise. Yeah, mm-hmm. a remake or a franchise. Absolutely, good spot on there. Just just, just curious, um, out of curiosity, Lee, do you have any insight to his last one, his last film, Burn Hollywood Burn? Because I, I personally love it as a guilt like. Just, I hate to use the word guilty pleasure, but just a very fascinating film, like a very interesting, interesting film with the cast and, and, and the budget and how it obviously didn't do very well and was panned and hated to this day. But did, do you know is any insight to his last film at all, Lee? I'm just oh, curious. Really? I'd love to now. Like you, yeah, I need yeah. to rewatch it. But um, <clears throat> it's one of those ones that was always a hole in, um, you know, my Hiller sort of watching. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, just cause maybe ultimately cause it's you know <laughs> latter day like is, <laughs> but um yeah no that now you mentioned it I really want to kind of revisit it and see because it's always interesting to see what these filmmakers last works are yeah um, or you know what they end up doing like their you know kind of their final their final pieces and it's yeah it's always interesting to see how their career the trajectory of their career went mm. um. But yeah, but he like again like Ryan mentioning things like Beverly Hills Cop three and yeah you know the the diversity again it's like it's crazy like he jumps from you know serious sort of drama to like these you know very bombastic comedies, um, but yeah no that one Burn Hollywood Burn I want to revisit yeah it's one I want to revisit too it's just um yes yeah, so seeing these yeah directors in their final days like it's yeah it's, it's very fascinating definitely. Mm-hmm. It's been many years since I've seen an Alan Smithy film, Burn Hollywood Burn. Oh, if we but get... it's a piss take on Hollywood. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think people liked it in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, remember it kind of being sort of, you know, like the player and all those kind of yes, yes. satirical kind of, you know, piss takes on Hollywood. I mean, my favourite, um, I guess, I don't know how you, if you'd call it a piss take, but my favourite kind of satire on Hollywood is Day of the Locust. That's my favourite. Yeah. yeah. It's just, just a great one. Yeah, terrifying film. 
Um, but yeah, it's a really interesting subgenre, isn't it? Like it's the whole commentary on on film industry is its own thing. Whether it's all about Eve or Sunset Boulevard or yeah, those kind of films are really interesting. Yeah, the Day of the Locust. That's that movie is so disturbing, but it's also, yeah. but it has one of the most shocking endings in the film, I believe. It's oh, yeah. It's a highly a... disturbing ending. And no doubt we'll, we'll be talking about this that movie soon because I, we must have we must talk about the devil because I can go on forever without it. I love it. Mm, it's a great one. And I, it's interesting. Um, I know that, Tony, you've been um, on a Norman Lear binge recently. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Sally Struthers was meant to play the role of um, the Karen Black character in... Yeah, originally, which was which is pretty crazy. Wow, that is crazy. Mm. Would have been a totally different film. It would have been. I think she was committed to um, all in the family at the time, but yeah. But that's another wonderful release from Imprint. So they're doing beautiful work. And I um, there's a couple of titles that I'm sitting on which I'm not allowed to mention at the moment because they haven't been announced, but. I'm very excited to when they do get announced and they're two films from the vaults that, yeah, I think fans and collectors and um, just, you know, cinephiles in general are going to be very happy with. But, um, yeah, there's a lot coming up. They're, they're doing beautiful work. Can't wait to can't wait for the announcements to post it up on the groups. And um, mm. can't well, wait for this podcast to end so we can hear them, Lee. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I get the hint. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you can't help it. You got you you got to love this informative. You got you got to love this inf- in, this information. It's great. I know but, Ryan's making me feel so unwelcome. Like, like, <laughs> like he's making me feel like I should just shut the fuck up. I got shut shut the fuck I'm going to be a guest. Let other go, things oh, yeah. And I don't say anything. <laughs> Oh, no, it's great. I'm soaking it in. Keep going. <laughs> no, see, even our guest Paul wants you to keep on going. Never stop. But no, uh, but we're allowed to have one. <laughs> well, I guess this is the <laughs> okay. Well, according to Ryan, I guess this is the end of the episode. Thanks for ruining it, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's all good. It's all good. Yeah, the yeah now the out of the out of is now out of print, and um, if you can find it somewhere, grab it. It is worth watching. If it infuriates you, that's the point of it. It's supposed to infuriate you, but at least it makes at least it'll make you laugh at the same time. So um, now um, Paul, how did you enjoy your first experience on Imprint Cast? absolutely loved it loved all the uh, information that lee has fantastic um background on films actors everything and yeah great to talk about our appreciation for not only the label but the film itself and the industry oh it's great every time every time lee comes on the show we can't we we love it we can't we can't we just except for ryan except for ryan I, you know, I just need a nice ciggy and a drink with you, Lee, and we could do it for hours. 
Melbourne. Yeah, we'll do a live recording actually. We can do a yeah. live recording, but we'll just be in a barn. <laughs> <laughs> and order some fruit tingles. Mm. <laughs> we'll explain that to you in a second, Paul. Thank you. I wanted to ask Paul a question. What's a, so you're in Perth, is that right? No, I'm in Sydney, Western Sydney. Oh, you're in Sydney as well. Okay, cool. So with the, yeah. say, for instance, the sort of film culture that's there, I mean, I've asked you as well, Tony and John, mm-hmm. but as far as like, not so much like the, you know, this the culture as far as like going to see rep stuff and, you know, um, film festivals and all that stuff. I'm talking about like the collector thing. Is that kind of like a community unto itself as well? Like it kind of is here where you'd have, um, you know, basically, I guess it's facilitated because there's things like the Asta and Cinemaniacs and Monster Fest and all that stuff where people who actually buy physical media sort of congregate and go to these rep things. Is that something that happens there or not really? Is it kind of a bit more um individual and isolated um i mean personally i'm a little more individual and isolated um from it but i i follow it more through like the groups online and stuff that's how i've kind of been exposed to it um i guess right yeah cool and i like it's interesting when i see people buy um for the label's sake so, like, for instance, you'll see people buy every Criterion release, but they don't necessarily <laughs> know the film, which is fine. That's fabulous. But I think, yeah, it's really interesting, that kind of thing. And it's great when these people actually do watch these films and then they've got a new film they love. I think that's magnificent because I think the the curation of these labels obviously dictate taste and, you know, you, you'll go, okay, you know, imprint released you know, all these different varied titles. I'm going to buy all of them um, for my completest sensibilities. And then I'm going to actually fall in love with all these movies. Or sometimes I might not. But it's that whole thing about the risk of watching something you haven't seen. I think that's really admirable. I know that sounds a bit probably extreme, but I think it really is because it kind of suggests that you're open to everything. Uh, And I think it helps when it's a label that sort of puts these titles out. It's really shit when people are narrow-minded and they don't want to see anything or they just stick to what they know. So when if, a, if a label says, oh, here, you know, here's, um, you know, uh, the out-of-towners and then next week we've got, I don't know, Audrey Rose and then we've got, you know, um, some freaking religious epic or then we've got some, you know, uh, I don't know, crime film, whatever the case may be, then it's kind of like, oh, no, I have to get them all and then I'm going to watch them all and I'm going to increase and expand my filmic vocabulary. That's fabulous. I think that's really cool. Yeah, I completely agree. That's one way I discover quite a few films. Just step out of my comfort zone and watch something new, um, whether it be something like much older, something a little bit newer in film history, but then be able to watch something and go, wow, like, can say I've discovered this now and then delve into it deeper with the special features involved and it just really like rounds out the experience um yeah I, that's one way i mainly started watching lots of different films was from collecting to be able to go right well now i'm looking at this label so i might be able to pick up other things they release and yeah just be able to like expand what i can watch really yeah cool and what are some of just for the just uh, uh, i'm flipping the tails here i'm just flipping the tables sorry <laughs> i'm becoming the interviewer but what no, are the, please go ahead 
the four of you are collected, mad collectors, which is stunning, and that's fabulous, and it keeps this industry alive, and that's really good. Um, but just as someone who produces features and works in features, and um, you know, that's pretty much you know a lot of my work is that. What are your favourite kind of features? Do you do you like you know commentaries, video essays? Do you like documentaries? Do you like talking head stuff? Uh, what kind of stuff do you, do you like? Archive stuff. I mean, do you like it all? But what do you gravitate towards um, as far as features? And do you sort of uh, not buy releases if they don't have features? I like it when you Barclay. That's all I want in my features. <laughs> 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 that's a really good question lee but that's yeah, a good more, question you can answer first oh, personally i do tend to gravitate towards the talking heads um documentary style ones um that i just find those really good um then followed by audio commentaries and the lack of special features though won't deter me from buying a film um that there's still be you know to have the film whatever it might be on a physical release will still be great um but then the supplements are just you know good to explore and i usually do it exactly after watching the film i'll watch the film and then explore the supplement supplemental material john what about you uh yeah look like what paul said i agree um look if a film hasn't got extras I, it won't stop me from getting it if, if it's a film i really want um but yes i would much prefer if there were extras because it, it is you know it, it's a second life to the to the film um but yeah I, i'm a big fan of commentaries that's kind of my thing i love commentaries just personally I, I put them on when i do some housework and have it running in the background um but i i do like and i miss because i feel like some producers are moving away from this so these like feature length uh making of documentaries on films which um which like i said uh, i know they're costly and time consuming but if they can be done that's kind of like my holy grail of an extra like in these 60 minutes like really great um structured uh, making ofs where, where you're interviewing the cast and crew i feel like now a lot of studios i don't know i've just noticed that they're splitting up the interviews into like 10 extras and i prefer to have them all curated in a nice story that kind of tells a, a making of that's just me personally but uh it's it's not crucial but i i i do love my commentaries and making ofs that's for me ryan how about you um making ofs are always good always like um I guess reflections, I guess what you were talking about, Paul, before, like just people talking about reflecting on the movie and like their experiences making the movie, they're always fun. Um, your commentaries, Lee, of course, 100%. Um, commentaries are always good. I don't listen to many, but um, I do think commentaries are good to give a different, like, sort of like, I guess in a way, like an outsider perspective. Yeah. In a sense that, like, it's not like a filmmaker's, like, look at the film. It's like a fan's look at the film. Yeah, I, I like those interviews, too, where it's like, like yourself, Lee, or like a Kim Newman or something that's just talking off the top of their head, like, <laughs> throughout 10 or 15 minutes. I love those. I find them fascinating. Love a good Kim Kim Newman one. Kim He's Newman. always great to yeah. listen to. He is. He is. Like, whenever Kim just... Uh, like I always get excited when I see Kim Newman extra, or like you said, yourself, Lee. I'm like, oh wow, like that's great. It entices me more to, to get the disc earlier. So yeah, things like that really fascinate me because they're just, um, it is a fan's perspective, but it's just it's giving a, you know, obviously weren't involved with the cast or the filming or anything, just an overview of of the history of it, which I find really fascinating, me personally. 
But for me, extras are paramount. They are, they are necessary. I like, for example, as you said, as you said, Paul earlier, if a movie has no features, I'll still get it. But if there is, if the same movie has features from another country, I'll order that one with my extras. That's what I'll do. Yeah. But yeah, that's what I'll do, definitely. And of course, commentaries, they're very important. And um, as, you, as you know, Lee, I, I love your commentaries. My favorite commentary of yours will always be Night of the Leapers. Oh. That's my, that's <laughs> my favorite commentary of yours. I'll, I, I'll, I'll say that. But my very first commentary of yours was The Reincarnation of Peter Proud. Yeah, right. That's that one was of my first, yeah. The, that was the first one I've heard of yours. And that was, that was amazing. But also, as you said, John, the feature-length documentaries on the making of the movie, probably my favourite, my all-time favourite feature-length film of the making of was The Making of Cleopatra from 1963. It's called Mm. The Film That Changed Hollywood. That was a brilliant two-hour doco. And um, speaking of two-hour docos, the the imprint release of The Beast, that's a feature-length documentary as well. It is. The Making of, which is amazing. And that actually just went out of print yesterday <laughs> and um wow after two weeks and that was just incredible but um but yeah l- lengthy documentaries small featurettes uh, they're okay but i would prefer feature length as you said the more extras the better personally yeah that's cool and also um i mean i'm a big fan of doing them but the video essay thing i think that's amazing that imprinter investing in that i think that's really important because it kind of brings in a different aspect to the release itself because what you want to try and do and i think imprint do it so beautifully and so successfully is engage with an audience on all levels so you've got um your um production history stuff that can be covered either in the commentary or with interviews of people who worked on the film um, or with archive of like, you know, vintage featurettes or making of stuff. But then you have critical stuff. So you have stuff that people kind of have to, you know, get, go, oh, wow, hang on, this is a whole video essay about this whole theme, um, which, you know, in, you know, basically sort of opens up the film for discussion. Because I know for me as a kid growing up um, and a teenager, I was obsessed with film themes and critical analysis and theory and deep deep diving into, you know, um, character study and thematic study and formula and genre and all that stuff, as well as, of course, knowing about, you know, oh, how did they do this on this film or how did they make this or who worked on this, etc. But I think both of that really needs to be celebrated. And I try and do that with my commentaries. I try and do a combo of production history, so giving you, you know, breakdowns and, um, insight into how the film was made or what was happening at the time or blah, blah, blah. But then also um, uh, marry that with critical analysis and um, insight and also sort of talk about sort of uh, social commentary and also what was happening at the time of the film's production in relation to the film's thematic um, pool or even the production history. So I think it's all important. But video essays, which I really love doing, um, and every time I get a gig for a video essay, I get very excited and I work on them very very quickly and go into it and just do deep dive research and just love it because it's so nice and you know you get to kind of sometimes choose your topic which is fabulous you know 
Um, I like doing those and then you kind of can deep dive into the theme or the thing that you've chosen as a topic or a point of conversation and bring in shitloads of other titles and things that you can just sort of riff on and, you know, research and um, theorise on, etc. So, for instance, you know, for Imprint, I did, um, for Audrey Rose, I did a video essay on reincarnation in film. So, you know, that was a, that gave me, allowed me an opportunity to talk not only about, you know, on a clear day you can see forever, which is the Vincent Minnelli musical with Barbara Streisand, but I could talk about Benji in Oh Heavenly Dog. So you can have, you know, so you can do that. And I think that's, that's really cool. And then audiences or sorry, you know, yeah, spectators like yourselves or collectors or people who are film fans or um, whatever can both, you know, watch the interview with the cinematographer talking about blah, 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 but then can tune on into like a video essay where it's, you know, film theory. Um, and I think that's both really important. I think people, and also I think there's an assumption that um, one is more important than the other, and that's not, that, that's not true. I think they both are important. And also something that really irks me personally sometimes is a lot of critics um, tend to not... Um, uh, reach out to people who worked on the films, um, and if if you're dealing if you if you're assigned to a film and, and it's from the seventies onwards, chances are a lot of people are still alive. So I don't know why your people are scared to actually reach out. So I've always tried to reach out to people to get insights, to get production history, hopefully get them on the disc, you know. Um, but yeah, that's something that I really think is important and valid, and I think that needs to happen. But the other side of the coin is. You know, people um, not caring about what critics have to say, or you know, what historians have to say, or you know, theorists or essayists have to say, because all they want to know is cold hard facts. And I'm like, well, that's cool, but you know, sometimes you don't want just to know about the catering. Like, you know, you want to hear, you know, insight into. Um, you know, I guess film theory and what's going on um, in the film um, from your own sort of idiosyncratic or your own personal um, input and your insight and your analysis and your and your opinion. But anyway, so that's really interesting. Those two flip sides. I think there's a lot of people, um, audiences who really want both, and that's what I think um, the job that I do, the job that we do as as, as critics and historians or whatever you want to call us should do we should deliver both because i think it's important absolutely could not agree more well have you all nodded off have you all fallen asleep no almost not but not because of you because of, of... well no worry yeah. ryan we're gonna end it right now uh, <laughs> <laughs> i sound old i'm old oh you could have ended it. With, I could have just said, "Hey guys, I'm leaving." That's... <laughs> oh, it's okay. Well, 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 it's 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 just about to end. Don't worry. But before but before we do go, um, Lee, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. It means a lot, as as always. Thank you. And once again, Paul, thank you for joining in on your first time. Hopefully, we'll love to have you on again later on in the future. And, thank you um, so much. I had a ball. Yeah, I, I'm glad you had a ball. Just course, pick another fan favorite poll, and then that will get you back on. Well, <laughs> yes. well, we've already got our next member lined up. So um, when that time, <laughs> when that time comes, we'll do another fan poll. And um, 
Now, coming soon from the for the show is, um, as you probably saw in our group, um, in our groups, is a special Q and A episode with Imprints Creative Director Josh Hibbert. We still haven't got an official date as yet, but um, he is aware and he has read some of the questions that you have posted, and um, he will keep us posted when he is free and when the time comes, we will announce it on the groups. Really looking forward to that. In the, looking forward to that Q and A. It's going to be amazing. And of course, um, coming soon, we'll be discussing more imprint releases. Of course, the October releases that have been announced a while back. We will be recording an episode of that, as well as more um, more film releases to discuss. This is the end of episode number eleven of um, Imprint Cast for the Out of Towners, and. Um, Lee, Paul, thank you so much. Ryan and John, as always, thank you for joining in on the episode. Mm-hmm. Thank and, you, Lee. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thank Wonderful. you, as always. Thank you, thank you, Paul, for curating this almost, <laughs> bringing us all together. <laughs> yes, it's great to have you on, Paul. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Our pleasure. Yeah, and to follow us, please follow our Facebook groups, the Imprint Films Blu-ray Collection fan group and the Imprint Cast Facebook groups. Please follow on and everything you want to know about Imprint from fans, this is, these are the groups to follow. Thank you so much and hope you have a good one and more content will be coming soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.